Welcome to DLSN, a podcast brought to you by McGuire Woods and Seven Mile Advisors. DLSN promotes the advancement of women in private equity and finance through conversations with women leaders and rising stars in the private equity and finance space. These conversations provide both insights and practical takeaways to inform your deal work and enhance the culture of your organization. If you're ready to drive the industry toward a more inclusive and diverse environment, then it's time to come to the table. and welcome to our second annual Spooky Halloween episode of the DLSN podcast brought to you by McGuire Woods and Seven Mile Advisors. Joining us again today are partner Jody Lawson and partner Susan Rodriguez. Jody is a high-stakes litigator who represents clients in federal and state court actions and arbitrations. Susan primarily focuses on government investigations and complex civil litigation. She also worked as a policy advisor at the Department of Homeland Security. As you may recall, on our last Halloween episode, we discussed several hair-raising hypotheticals, including monstrous definitions lurking in purchase agreements, the ghosts of releases past, and the looming consequences that may befall those unwary of state security statutes. If you would like to listen to that episode as well, you can go to dealusinpodcast.com or wherever you found us now. Today, we'll be discussing the pitfalls of arbitration and waiver of jury clauses, ghostly visits from I-9s of yore, and what happens when rep and warranty insurance safety nets aren't so safe. Jody and Susan, welcome, and thank you for coming back to lend some more of your expertise. Thanks so much for having us. It's great to be back again, and I think we've got some interesting topics, some interesting and spooky topics to talk about today. So I guess among the the topics we want to cover today, the first one I have is arbitration. And I know that many on the corporate side of things think an arbitration clause is is a good thing to include kind of in the boilerplate of a lot of different types of agreements. But there's a lot to consider on whether or not you actually want to include an arbitration clause, including the nature of the agreement. These things, to me, can seem like a killer rabbit from Monty Python. You know, it looks safe. You think, how could you go wrong with this? But there's pros and cons to arbitration clauses like anything else. Jody, do you want to fill us in on some of the some of the pitfalls related to arbitration clauses? Absolutely. And this is something that you really want to look at on a case-by-case and client-by-client basis. There are certainly some benefits to arbitration. Uh, One of those is confidentiality. You're not going to have your case in the public court docket, and there are confidentiality requirements surrounding arbitration proceedings. So it's not going to be anywhere in the public docket for people to see what is going on. Some of the things that, you know, people should think about strategically is that the arbitration rules are very different than those um, in either state or federal courts. And I think some clients and some businesses might find that the rules of civil procedure have protections that are built into them for the discovery process, for example. The federal rules and, you know, most state equivalent of the civil rules, again, have limitations on the types of discovery that can be taken 
how long your depositions can last, how many requests for production or interrogatories a party may be limited to, and discovery is one of the most expensive pieces of a case usually. And so if you're in arbitration, you do not have some of those protections that are built into the state court rules. So that's something to think about. Another thing that I think is important for people to think about is, you know, who is your client? And, you know, is this a matter that you want to be before a court that's going to have potentially a reasoned decision, a judge and a jury, or, you know, an arbitrator? Usually arbitrators, you're going to have either a panel of one or a panel of three, and you would go through a selection process of, you know, picking, it's a mutual selection process of picking and ranking arbitrators who would preside over your case. And again, you know, those people usually come with different experience. Sometimes arbitrators are uh, not lawyers. So that's something to think about. And one of the, I think, pitfalls I think that I've seen in arbitrations is that a lot of times arbitrators have a tendency to split the baby on things, meaning that the law may be one thing. And if you were in court, you could potentially win on an issue on summary judgment. But an arbitrator, a lot of times, looks very closely at the facts. And maybe there is a legal issue, but arbitrators, you know, can kind of say, well, you know, I'm going to split the baby here. So I'm going to give you half and I'm going to give you half. So that's something to think about. Whereas sometimes it may actually be better for you to be in court and to have a judge applying the law since there are certainly many different doctrines of law that can potentially preclude people's claims, whereas an arbitrator may, you know, feel the need to kind of go have these with people. You know, that may be something that the client wants. A lot of clients value confidentiality and being out of the public court docket. Some people would prefer to be in the court system. If you have a client that maybe has concerns where having something out in the public court docket could potentially hurt your business, could cause a negative impact on investors, you know, maybe arbitration is the place for you. If you don't have those concerns, then, you know, maybe you're better off focusing on maybe picking up appropriate venue where you'd like the parties to agree to have your cases proceed. Really, it's a, it's a strategic discussion. And I, I wouldn't suggest anybody just automatically default to arbitration or automatically default to courts. You really want to think closely about who you want to be deciding your dispute in the event one happens while, you know, after you've entered into your agreement. And Jody, just to add to that too, I think an important consideration is cost. I think a lot of people, clients that I deal with automatically think arbitration is going to be cheaper. And so they also think that let me choose arbitration because it, it will uh, help my bottom line. That is true in some cases, but I will say Jody and I have both been involved in arbitrations that can be just as expensive as litigation. Sometimes litigation we can get out of quicker, you know, at a motion to dismiss stage, which is a very early stage of litigation, um, because some claims are precluded based on jurisdiction. And so we can quickly get out of a lawsuit. Whereas arbitration, Jody said they might split the baby and things keep going on and on and on. And so that's just something else to consider is the cost and arbitration isn't always cheaper. And that, that's a myth that we, we commonly hear. So just always think about, you know, what is best for you. I think we always recommend you talk to legal counsel about these issues. And as you're going through a deal, you know, we're often updating 
customer agreements, terms and conditions. I know a lot of the deal counsel that I work with will automatically default to arbitration, but I think this is always something good to think about strategically and what is best for your company. Susan, that's a really good point. And just to underscore that, I have an arbitration right now. And I'll tell you, my jaw hit the floor when I got my first bill for uh, the arbitration. And a lot of times it depends on who the parties are, but um, the businesses have to pay you know, usually a hefty fee. And not only that, but you're paying either a panel of one or a panel of three, you're paying their hourly rate. And you know, sometimes arbitrations can last even longer than, than trials can last. And so as you can imagine, you know, you're not paying the jury, you know, obviously something that the public is, is paying for. But when you're dealing with costs and arbitrations, you could be looking at a very, very hefty bill, not only to the company that's hosting the arbitration, whether it be AAA, JAMS, or depending on the matter, even potentially FINRA, but there are you know, significant costs that you pay for that, and then you're paying an hourly rate for either one or three people on top of that. So those bills can add up pretty quickly. So very good point, Susan. With respect to costs, it's not just the outright costs and out-of-pocket that could be a consideration whether or not you're choosing to include an arbitration clause. And of course, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. but when you're looking forward and trying to predict what would be best, I mean, I think it's important to consider what are the types of disputes that might arise. And if someone, if it's going to be costly for both sides, someone could be using that cost as leverage to kind of bolster a weaker argument to get a better, basically to get a better settlement or, or better result for themselves just to get away from the cost of the arbitration or the the time away from the business that the arbitration is taking. So, Susan, have you seen basically either side using the cost of the arbitration as leverage? Well, you know, you make a very good point and absolutely. And that's another point that people should really think about strategically is cost uh, shifting or fee shifting provisions and agreements. We see those from time to time. The position that I usually take on it is I usually recommend people follow the American rule, which is each side pays for their own attorney's fees. But there absolutely can be negotiated agreements as to who is going to be bearing the cost of the arb- not only the arbitration, but prevailing party attorney's fee provisions. And I usually steer clear of those because I feel like it generally upsets the apple cart and can create some negative leverage on your side, if you would be potentially responsible for paying for the other side's attorney's fees, that's a really good thing to think about. You know, on the other hand, you know, depending on your position, your negotiating position, maybe you want to include a prevailing party attorney's fee provision. But I would really think long and hard about doing that because that does ultimately become, in my experience, a significant leverage point when people are trying to figure out how they're going to work out a post-closing dispute. Right. And this was where you go back to the arbitrator and you never know what they're going to decide too. I once had a case where we were in arbitration was going really well for us. We had the overwhelming evidence on our side in our favor. We had a statute to support us as well that it gave us entitlement to attorney's fees that departed from the American rule just because this we had the special statute. And the arbitrator said, you know, yep, you win your claim, you get all the money that we were owed, but we're not going to give you your attorney's fees. 
And that is going back to splitting the baby. That was their way to split the baby. Whereas you would probably see in a court case, if there's a clear on point statute like that, you're likely going to see a judge, you know, following that statute. And that's another thing to think about. Um, Yeah. Arbitrators, they don't always have to give reasoned decisions. So they can decide whatever they want and they don't necessarily have to say why they're deciding that. So in this, in Susan's example, you know, thinking through this, they're, they're actually not following what the statute says, but they don't have a reasoned decision and, you know, their decision is what it is. And, you know, you don't really have a way of kind of compelling them to follow what you believe the law is. That's the decision they reach. Whereas if you're in a court, you know, there's obviously an appellate process that you would file if a judge is not actually not following uh, a statute that's very clear on its face. I think that kind of leads to the, you know, back to the point that you made earlier, Jody, which was, you know, who do you want to decide your case? We've talked about arbitration. You know, in some cases you're including, you might include a waiver of jury trial because you don't want to put um, a complex business scenario in the hands of a jury, or, you know, you might be selecting the court involved, and or you might be selecting an arbitrator for all sorts of different reasons. But all of those have their disadvantages and disadvantages, and, you know, certainly the provisions themselves can have pitfalls, for instance, with respect to a waiver of jury trial. And I know that there's been certain kind of put the decision in the hands of court rather than say an arbitrator. Sometimes you want to be very specific with the with the particular court you're selecting in a state. Any thoughts on what you've seen in your practice related to court selection or waiver of jury trial, Jody and Susan? Yeah, this is Jody, absolutely. So what I see a lot is people gravitate towards Delaware. And that would be both Delaware choice of law and a Delaware venue provision. And so for a choice of law provision, that means, you know, which state substantive law is going to decide any dispute that you have with your agreement, which state substantive law is going to apply. And for that, strategically, there are a couple of things for you to think about. For example, North Carolina, some businesses do not want North Carolina choice of law to govern their disputes because North Carolina has a statute that prohibits people from contracting around jury trials. So for North Carolina law, and North Carolina law applies, you cannot say we waive jury trial. That doesn't work. So for businesses, that want to be able to waive a jury trial, they would have to look to another state. And importantly, the state is going to have to be connected with your matter in some way, shape, or form. You need to have an office there. You need to have some sort of connection there. And a lot of people default to Delaware. And the reason for that is a lot of people's businesses are incorporated in Delaware. And frankly, I think the law in Delaware is very good. The substantive law in Delaware is very good. It's very robust. And it's very developed in contract and business disputes. And so that's something to think about is who's, which state's substantive law do you want to apply in your agreement? And then the other thing you want to think about, to your point, Kelsey, is where do I, where do I want my case heard? And for Delaware, I personally do not prefer to have Delaware listed as a venue. And the reason for that is Delaware requires that your attorney have an office physically located in the jurisdiction in order to be counsel of record in a case. 
And so given, you know, my situation, you know, I'm admitted to practice in North Carolina, Virginia, and DC, but I have a nationwide practice and I, and I practice all over the country. And the problem is I actually, and in my office, since my firm does not have an office located in Delaware, we always have to associate with local counsel. Now, thankfully, we have great local counsel that we have used that have great substantive knowledge about the local practice in Delaware courts that we can use, but that's an extra cost that my clients would have to incur if they had a Delaware venue provision. And so one of the things that I like to encourage people to think about when they're thinking, where do I want my dispute governed, instead of just automatically defaulting to Delaware, looking to states like North Carolina, for example, we have a business court in North Carolina We have incredibly sophisticated judges here who preside over complex business cases. It's a court of limited jurisdiction. There are certain prerequisites that would have to be met to get your case into North Carolina business court. They hear cases involving things such as substantial breach of contract matters, cases that involve claims under the Securities Act. And they really do have a very substantive expertise on complex business matters. So I would always be happy to be in a North Carolina business court case before one of our wonderful North Carolina business court judges. So that's something to think about. There are other states that have business courts where, you know, you're not just going to get stuck in the kind of normal state court docket where, you know, you may have judges who are not as up to speed or is experienced on a complex business dispute. So that is something else that I would suggest that people look at is, you know, where do you want your case to be heard? And, you know, looking both at state substantive law that you want to apply that, again, needs to have some sort of connection to your business or the dispute. And then secondly, you know, which which court do you want to be in? And sometimes also people, you know, you want to look at state court and federal court Depending on the matters that are at issue, you may not have to be in state court. You may be able to get in federal court, depending on what type of claims that you might have. So that's another thing to think about. But I think for most general breach of contract cases, unless you have parties that are diverse, meaning that they're from different states and you have um, a controversy that exceeds $75,000, you are likely going to be in state court. And again, that's not necessarily a bad thing if you have states that have specific business courts. And then looking at the potential of maybe removing to federal court, depending on who the parties are and how much is actually in dispute. One additional question related to that, and just to clarify, in these state business courts, the state-specific business courts, in your experience, Jody, do they have a lot of familiarity applying Delaware law? I mean, we always think on the corporate side of things, okay, Delaware law has a good balance of you know, and a lot of case law surrounding a number of sophisticated transactions that's really well established. I guess can you end up selecting one of these business courts, but still select Delaware law and have them, and they have experience applying that law as well as their own state law. Absolutely. And that's actually what's happened in my experience is if there isn't any North Carolina law on issue, our business court judges often look to Delaware for either comparable or applicable law that they might be able to look to to decide uh, a business a business issue. 
So I think that's very common. And I think at least in North Carolina, I know all of our business court judges are very familiar with Delaware law and they regularly apply it in their decisions. Jody, that's that's really informative. It's really helpful to think through. I don't think a lot of us consider these state-specific business courts probably enough or prohibitions and jury trial waivers and the like kind of unseen costs and risks relate to arbitration. So that's that's all a lot to think about in in just the boilerplate section, basically, of our agreements. Um, so thank, thank you for that. I know one of the other topics we wanted to cover was some of the pitfalls and scary, spooky issues that can arise related to I-9s. And this is a continuation of our discussion from last year. However, this year, we're under a new administration. We kind of had some live input and thoughts about where things might go based off of, you know, what direction the election might take. And now finding ourselves a year forward from what our discussion last year on I-9, Susan, I guess, what are you seeing that's different maybe under the Biden administration or the same? Well, that's a really interesting question. I I think a lot of people thought under the Biden administration, we would see some sort of downturn in worksite enforcement because, you know, you thought this would be a more immigration-friendly administration. I think outwardly, that's what we have seen so far. However, on worksite enforcement, we have actually not seen that go down, which is surprising to some people or surprising, you know, to some of my clients. We've seen as many notice of inspections, those are I-9 audits, as we've ever seen. Of course, that may change next year. It could be that this is just coming down from the prior administration, but we're still seeing quite a bit of activity in the audit. I'm also seeing, you know, whereas before under the Trump administration, there was a lot of focus on critical infrastructure. There was an initiative by the Department of Homeland Security to focus on companies that are, you know, energy related, nuclear, that type of industry. Whereas now I'm starting to see the shift back to the food industry and the agriculture industry. So we're we're seeing quite a bit of activity in, in terms of audits and in, in in that realm. I think the just to level set for everyone too, why this comes up, you know, in our deals and can be really scary is there are both civil and criminal fines associated with this Form I-9. And for those of you all, you've done deals, you've probably seen it. It's on everybody's checklist this day. Are the Form I-9s compliant? And what you're looking for is this two-page form. Every time you hire somebody in the United States, all companies have to comply with this. You fill out this two-page form. The employee fills out Section 1 and the company fills out Section 2. You have to submit your driver's license or social security card, birth certificate, passport, green card. It's up to the employee what they want to present. You fill out the I-9 and then the government can come in and do an inspection. If you don't have those I-9s filled out correctly, you can be fined. And it's a pretty substantial fine that can be per employee for just paperwork violations. If they see a bigger issue, such as the company hiring unauthorized workers, and they're doing this knowingly or maybe with constructive knowledge that's kind of burying your head in the sand, then the company could also face criminal liability. 
Now, that's very rare, but of course, when you're doing a deal, that's the scary part that you want to avoid. You want to make sure that your workforce is authorized to work. You also want to make sure that, you know, when you buy a new company or that you're not going to have the government come in, you know, six months later and, you know, find a bunch of workers who are not work authorized and then you have to terminate all those workers. That can be a huge business risk for you and, and of course, a legal one, which we've already talked about. So that's why it's so important. I've seen this be a major focus of deals more recently, where if you have certain industry types, this becomes really, really important. When you're doing a deal, we covered some of this last year, but just to kind of, again, level set for everyone, you have a couple of options. One option is to keep the old I-9s that are on file for the employees and you inherit any liabilities that come with keeping those I-9s. Or two, you can do all new I-9s, which sounds like a great option. And then you can cut off the old liabilities from the old company. But there's a trick with that. There is a regulatory time frame in which you must complete the Form I-9. And so let's say if you have a deal close on Thursday night at midnight, the first day of work for pay, which triggers the Form I-9, is going to be the following day, that Friday. And so it means all your employees have to complete the first part of the Form I-9 on that Friday. And then by the end of the third business day thereafter, you have to complete Section 2. So, you know, if you've got a company of 50 employees, well, that's pretty easy to do. But in some of the deals that we work on, you know, you have 600, 700, 2,000 employees, for example. And that becomes very administratively burdensome to do. So there are some ways that you can structure it so that perhaps you can do them early if there's offer and acceptance. But it's a very tricky and very challenging thing. So again, that's where we come in to help navigate the scary parts of a deal and we can help you figure out how best to navigate that. That's just a little bit about how 4i9s are coming up these days. It can be you know, a real deal killer too. We have, we have actually seen 4i9 issues kill a deal. Which I think is would be surprising to a number of listeners potentially, just because I don't think that that's not always the type of thing that people are considering and looking for on their short list of risks when they're looking at a business right? Like they might be looking at audits or litigation, the quality of earnings, a number of different things come to mind. But I-9s are, you know, depending on the industry, right? Sometimes they're more at the front of mind and sometimes they're not. But I agree that we've seen deals where they can be the deal killer and can be a very troubling issue to try to, to work around. And I guess related to that, when you know or when you suspect that there may be an issue related to I-9s, that brings up a number of issues with how how you deal with that if there's not necessarily an active audit going on, right, Susan? So how do you typically, or maybe there's no typical way that people deal with it, but what are some options that people might take if they are seeing some inconsistencies with the I-9s they're reviewing or you're reviewing as you're going through the diligence process? Yeah, so there are a couple things that you can do with that. Number one, you can explore whether or not doing all new I-9s will cure the issue. Sometimes we have seen where 
the workforce has submitted perhaps fake documents. And even if you do not new I-9s, that's not necessarily going to cure the issue. We have, and so you may have to terminate a large part of your workforce. And how does that impact your purchase price? Do you really want to do this deal? That's where you get into the deal killer. So it becomes you know, a very tricky issue. The other thing, if we're just seeing paperwork violations that, you know, maybe they're on a very large scale, but they're just sloppiness of paperwork, you know, those things you can navigate fairly easily. So if I see some major issues, but we're going to keep the I-9s, uh, company wants to do that for administrative reasons, it's just too much of a burden to repaper the whole workforce, you know, we'll look at a special indemnity. And we've been very successful at doing that. You know, of course, if I'm on the seller side, I may want to explore other options. But if I'm on the buyer side, I'm going to push for that pretty hard. I'll also look at holdbacks or escrow accounts. Sometimes it's a little more difficult. You don't actually have a notice of inspection yet. I usually reserve those for when there is a notice of inspection pending and we don't know what the outcome is going to be yet. So those are some other areas that, that you could explore. I also say, you know, just one more thing too. Sometimes people ask me, well, why can't I just do this as an asset purchase agreement? Doesn't that protect me? I'm really just buying the assets company. This is what happens when have immigration and corporate law sort of merged together. Immigration kind of takes a different view that isn't doesn't quite mesh with the corporate standards that we're all, you know, know and, and used to. So the idea is, at least in the form I-9 compliant, if you keep employees and you keep the I-9s and they're doing the exact same function, then you still have inherited form I-9 liability if you decide to keep those I-9s. So you're not necessarily automatically protected um, if you do an asset purchase agreement. I've certainly made those arguments to the government before. But I can tell you there is at least some case law out there that's administrative case law that suggests it can go the other way. And so I just always warn people, you know, to, to kind of think about that who don't know what might be lurking around the corner. Right. Or if you don't know what what I-9s might, if you haven't done the review or you haven't enlisted someone to do the review, what I-9s might haunt you in the future. <laughs> so either way. Um, Someone coming to actually look at a knock on your door or, you know, something coming up from a prior business. It's always scary when you have issues because you're right. We think about asset deals on the corporate side. I mean, certainly you're limiting a lot of different categories of liability, but there's ones that doing an asset deal are not going to shield you from. And I-9s are among them. So always something good to good to keep in mind. So talking about other potential shields that you have, a lot of clients for RWI and think that that's going to shield them from issues if they have an I-9 issue that's later discovered or even another regulatory issue. That's also something that we've been seeing quite frequently during the RWI process if there's any non-compliance with Form I-9, we always get asked about that, and oftentimes that is included as part of your RWI coverage. And so that's just something I wanted to point out for everybody, too, because we, we all think that that's a shield, it's going to help protect us, but at the end of the day, we 
have often found that that is just not the case because providers are getting very attuned to I-9 and I-9 compliance. Right. And I mean, I think that can hurt you two different ways. I mean, one, if you, if I-9 has not been part of the, if you haven't been reviewing the I-9s as part of the diligence process, which you should be, but, you know, you think you're in an industry that it has less enforcement actions or you think that, you know, they're a clean company or whatever is the case, as a client, you might just get a blanket exclusion on I-9s if you haven't done the math kind of to, to or the diligence to, to look through those. And then the separate issue is when you look through them, if whatever issues you're finding, you could, you know, get a blanket exclusion or negotiate down. But it's definitely something the parties need to be aware of. And I think this year in particular, there has been so much deal activity and there have been so many rep and warranty insurance deals that the rep and warranty insurance market itself has been very competitive, seeing more exclusion, seeing more policies that are stricter or more costly or any number of issues. You know, among them, I think we've seen how I-9s can be treated in, in the rep and warranty insurance context and, and not, along with any other known issues. And, you know, then the parties need to negotiate on the back end of that how those potential liabilities are going to be treated. My experience, the, I feel like the RWI does not always protect you from those skeletons that might be in your closet that you didn't know about. So, Jody, is there anything that comes to mind that you've seen in your practice uh, come up in that, in that way or more litigation around trying to get coverage under rep and warranty insurance policies? So high level, I think my general sense is that I feel like people believe they have, you know, a lot of comfort around an RWI policy, but I have found that when you actually get down to it and you go to the, you know, to the company to make your claim, I feel like people, there are usually a lot of exclusions that people may not been, have been aware of. Kind of generally speaking, I think insurance companies usually have a lot of outs. And so for RWI coverage, I would definitely suggest engaging an expert, looking at the fine print before you feel like you've got complete comfort there around that. Because, and like you said, it seems like the market is really hot. You know, there's a lot of deals going on right now. And so I feel like insurance companies, you know, will sometimes find ways to deny coverage. And so that's kind of been my general experience is that, you know, it's it's not always super easy to get coverage on those types of claims. That's where it really comes in handy on the front end on the deal side. When you have someone like Ann Ann Dorsett, who's another one of our hosts on this podcast, who has expertise with rep and warranty insurance and can help explain what the exclusions are or what the proposed exclusions are under a policy and negotiate where possible back from those or help the parties determine, you know, how they want to handle those up front should an issue come up to make sure the buyer has the coverage that they feel comfortable with. And to make sure that the buyer understands what it's getting as part of that coverage, because these policies can be costly at times, and you want to make sure that you're getting, you know, what you think you're paying for and not discovering on the back end that it's not as you expected. Well, I think that that is 
largely what we wanted to cover today. Susan, I don't know if there are, or Jody, are there any other general regulatory issues or current developments that you would like to cover uh, other than, I know that's a very broad question, other than what we've already discussed? Well, I think we could actually do even a whole other podcast on regulatory issues that come up uh, potentially in deals. But I think we've covered our topics for today, some of the scary and spooky things that we've been seeing out there and, and how to avoid them successfully. So thanks for having us back again this year. We'll hope to be back uh, next year with a, another series on our spooky and scary Halloween stories. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, thank you so much for having us. and. I like to keep a running list now of, you know, things we should be reporting on. So we'll look forward to hopefully doing that again next year. Yeah, I really look forward to that list and uh, hearing what you all have to add to kind of the list of horribles and terribles that we've come up with over the course of two years and expanding that <laughs> for more things to worry about in the future. But I think it's it's great to know these things up front and to hear your side of you know, your experience and your expertise on these, because they're certainly really important issues for us to consider on the deal side. And um, I just really thank you both for joining us again for another installment of our spooky Halloween episode. So thank you. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. Thank you for joining us at the table for this episode of DLSN. If you have a recommendation for an inspiring interviewee, a question you'd like us to ask, or a topic you would like to hear covered, or if you'd like to tell us about women-focused initiatives in the field, please go to our website at www.dlsnpodcast.com. We look forward to hearing from you. 